0: Well, I got my first tax-paying job at the age of 16. Uh, I was worked scooping ice cream at Baskin-Robbins. How many of you have heard of Baskin-Robbins? I don't know. There may be one, I think. Well, yeah, a lot of you. I think there's one over on uh, kind of in the inner bay area, if it's still open, but 31 flavors. Um, my dad called me the super scooper. Uh, that was my name as I worked that job as a 16-year-old. Not long after that, I shifted from ice cream to shoes and I began to sell shoes, which was a big challenge for me because I hate feet. And so it was a big deal for me to sell Shoes, but it was a better-paying job, and so I went for it. Even though I despise, despise feet. My dad changed my nickname at that point. He changed it from Super Scooper to uh, Al Bundy. Uh, and I don't know how many of you get that reference, but Al Bundy was a shoe salesman on a show called Married with Children, and uh, that was who I was around the house. Not long after I worked as a shoe salesman, I got a job at a plywood plant, working in the heat of uh, of Louisiana summers inside a plywood plant grading plywood planks that were coming out of these huge dryers, uh, deciding what grades to give them so they could go in the right stack, and then that would determine what use they would have, this, that, and the other. And so I would sport this big leather apron and wrap leather armbands around my wrist with big heavy gloves, still toed boots. Wrangler jeans, doing that for protection. I also had to wear this big orange mesh hat because I was the new guy and I was also just a temporary worker. And so the big orange hat signaled it to everybody in the plywood plant to stay away from this guy because he might hurt you. Uh, he doesn't know what he's doing, and so we're going to keep our distance. And so it's kind of a safety measure for everyone, everyone around me. Not long after I worked uh, at the plywood plant, I... I got a job in, with residence life in college, uh, running like a freshman guy's dorm for a while. That was a lot of fun. And then I and then, uh, got a job working at a different part of campus, more of a, uh, it was actually, it was uh, kind of like a village area of the campus where there were both men and women living there and going to school, this, that, and the other. And I kind of ran and oversaw that facility. Not long after that, I started working these Christian sports and rec camps during the summer. And I started coaching baseball at different on different college campuses around the country uh, for kids while at the same time teaching them about Jesus. It was a rich, rich time for me. And of course, you know now that I'm serving as a pastor of the Hallows Church, which I've had the privilege and the joy of, of this being my vocation since 2011-ish. And, uh, and I'm really thrilled to be serving in this capacity. But what this past week has done for me as I've been meditating on Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 as I've been thinking about the different types of jobs I have had. And I've been thinking about the connection between my faith and my work. The connection between God's grace and my vocations as my vocations have changed over time. And I found myself asking the question wondering if is there any qualitative difference in God's eyes between me scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins or me serving as a pastor of the Hallows church. And I've been meditating upon that question. The answer that I'm going to give you tonight may surprise you. And I hope it will encourage you no matter what vocation you find yourself in right now and what various vocations you may have as you journey through the world that is. I want us to think about the relationship between our faith and our work. What is the connection between God's grace in us and through us and the work that we do? It's a big deal because If you were to work 40 hours a week, if you were to work 40 hours a week, let's say for 40 years, you realize you will work 80,000 hours over the course of your lifetime. Now that's a big chunk of time. And you will probably spend most of your days in this world in some type of vocation, in some type of work force, contributing to society and providing for your life in some way, shape, or form. You're going to spend the most of your days doing that type of activity. And so we want to think, well, okay, well, if that's where I'm spending most of my time as I journey through this world, how am I to engage that as a disciple of Jesus? How do we engage our, the scattering of the church into our various vocations during the week so that we are still together making God's grace visible to the watching world? That the world is taking notice of the work ethic and they are taking notice of the work approach that you and I take in those contexts and in those rhythms. It was a conversation a guy had with Martin Luther one day. He walked up to him and and, uh, he wanted to know how he could make his work count. He wanted to know what type of holy work he could engage in. And so he approached Martin Luther, who was one of the catalysts in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, and he walked up to him and asked him about Uh, his work and wanted to know how he could make his work holy. And so Luther asked him, well, what do you do? What is your vocation or what is your work now? The guy responded, well, I am a shoemaker. And then much to the guy's surprise, Luther just looked at him and said, okay, well, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. That was his only counsel. You want your work to be holy, just make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Now, Luther did not take that moment to tell him to make holy shoes or Christian shoes. You know, he didn't tell him to go open up a business and then take a pun, probably something that has to do with souls, since you're making shoes. I'll <laughs> let that one sit with you for a bit. And uh, just kind of put that on the sign of your business and let that pun kind of drive the Christian message of your workplace. He, he didn't give him that kind of counsel. He just said, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Nor did he tell the man that if you really want your life to count and if you want your work to be holy, then you need to quit making shoes and become a monk like me. You need to give your life fully to a monastery, which is where I've been living and serving and going about my days. That's how I spend my days during the week. He didn't tell him that because he knew better. He knew better than to tell, give him that counsel. He understands that as, as followers of Jesus... When we are serving Jesus outside of the church and inside some type of workplace or work setting, whether that work takes place in a high rise or it takes place at home as, as, as a stay-at-home parent is raising three kids, he understood that, that all of that work counts and all of that work may be considered holy work for the Christian. That working outside of the church, not being a monk, doesn't make, didn't make that shoemaker kind of a junior varsity Christian. Uh, He said, look, you have incredible potential and opportunity to work well for the glory of God, to engage your vocation in a way that would not only meet your needs, but contribute to the flourishing of those around you, all while glorifying and honoring the God who made you in his image and the God who sent Jesus to rescue you from your sin and from your life of futile works that you might want to trust in. And so... What I want us to do is look at this passage with that in mind. What is the connection between our faith and our work? Where is God's grace in our varied vocations? Now, stepping into Ephesians chapter 6, looking at verses 5-9, through 9, you're not going to read language like employees and employers. You're not reading about that kind of work in this passage. Instead, you're reading about the kind of rock, uh, work that might uh, kind of unsettle you in your seat as you're reading about the work that slaves did in the first century. And you're reading about the work that masters or owners of slaves did in the first century. Now, that's a challenging dynamic. It's a challenging dynamic because we are Americans and we know what took place on our so- soil a little over 250 years ago. We know what went down here in our land and and if we're not careful, we're going to take our experiences and our understanding of American slavery and we're going to project those back into the first century and read American slavery back into Roman slavery. Uh, and while there are some similarities, we got to recognize that there are big, big differences between what happened here and what happened in Rome. You see American slavery was divide- was it happened along racial lines exclusively. There was one group of people that was enslaved and treated as slaves in this On this soil and in this land. And it was an entirely racial move and a racial decision. And those who would become slaves in this country, they were slaves for life. They had to spend their entire lives in terrible circumstances doing menial work for people who were oppressing them, whipping them, threatening them, and intimidating them to do so. But when you look back at slavery in the Roman Empire, now this is not to justify what happened in the first century, it's just to point out the differences. In the first century, Roman slavery wasn't divided along racial lines. Instead, a human being could find themselves a slave in the Roman Empire belonging to a master for a variety of reasons. Sometimes a person might be born into it. Let's say your mom and your dad were slaves of a certain master, and and they had you while that was the case, then you would become a slave by birth. Others became slaves in the first century by way of being outcast by their parents. So if a mom or a dad didn't want you, they would just throw you out on the street and abandon you, and you would be swept up in the slave system that was quite common, and that was the primary economic engine of the Roman Empire in the first century. Another way you could become a slave would be if you uh, were uh, taken captive after war. But then, so so you think about those reasons, and those reasons weren't very just. I mean, all of those reasons we would look at and say those are unjust reasons for anyone to become a slave. But there were other reasons in the first century that you might say are more justifiable. Meaning if you were a person who, who were of low financial and economic status in the first century, there was a way for you to improve your lot if you would voluntarily become someone's slave. And so if you wanted to increase your status and improve your lot in this world, then you could volunteer to become somebody's slave and be taken by a master. Others would do something similar, like if you were in a situation where you were indebted to another person, you owed somebody something that you could not pay. One of the ways that was commonly accepted for you to pay your debt back would be to Volunteer to become a slave for that. So you would look at this as kind of indentured servanthood, being a bond servant, that type of thing. And so slavery in Rome in the first century was quite different than slavery on the American soil. Both were unjust for different reasons, but there were certain elements of Roman slavery that caused it to be viewed as uh, a little bit more, not, not acceptable, but just it was viewed with a little bit better light. And one of the reasons why that is so is because anybody could be set free from their slavery. There was a path and a process for every slave to, be, to find their freedom. In fact, most slaves were not slaves for the life in the Roman Empire. They were slaves until they were about 30. And then they, by that time, they would have raised enough money that they could purchase and buy their own freedom. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's exactly what Paul would counsel Christians or slaves who became Christians. He would counsel them saying, hey, look, if you can buy your freedom, do it. Don't hold back. Don't feel like you have to be a slave for life. If you have that opportunity, take advantage of it, seize it, and go for it, which is interesting because it's the same guy who's telling slaves in verse 5 to obey your human masters, but he didn't say this is a, a life sentence for you. He said, no, you can find freedom. Now, another dynamic to slavery in the first century, and you might be interested in this, you might not, I'll just give it to you anyways. Uh, some Some of the things about slaves in the first century is that they could occupy any profession in the known world. So the mixture between slaves and free persons was so thick and so common that you oftentimes didn't know who was who and which was which. A slave could occupy any profession in the Roman Empire outside of political or governmental office. So they weren't making the decisions to abolish slavery, which is part of the reason why they kept them back from that. But many slaves could get an education. In fact, many slaves were more highly educated than their own masters. And this is, this is proven on a numerous historical accounts when you kind of read and explore the issues. And slaves then could not just, they weren't assigned just menial work. They could do all types of dignifying work in the first century, and all of them could be educated. They could own property even as slaves, and freedom was a very real possibility for every slave in the Roman Empire. Now, I share that with you because sometimes this passage is read and we don't understand the context of Roman slavery. And then all of a sudden we start blasting the Bible saying the Bible condones slavery or the Bible accepts slavery as something that should be practiced in every setting and in every culture. And in fact, this text on this soil was used to justify slavery in America But it was only used to justify slavery by those who didn't get the deep meaning of the book of Ephesians that speaks to a gospel of grace that changes everything. By people who didn't realize that what Paul is doing in verses 5 through 9 is quite subversive. He's quite subversive in his attack on slavery in the Roman Empire. Meaning Paul does not call for a revolution in this text. He doesn't tell slaves to rise up like Spartacus in 73 B.C. and go to war against their oppressors. He doesn't do that. He doesn't call for a rebellion. He doesn't call for a revolt. He doesn't attack the system per se. Instead, he takes a more subversive approach and he goes after the hearts of those who are a part of the system. He goes after the heart of those who are slaves, but those who are being changed by the gospel. He goes after the heart of the masters. He'll even address masters in this text, which was unheard of in the first century. For someone to talk to masters about treating slaves with dignity and not using force and threats against them, that was a crazy concept. But it was Paul's way of subversively going after something that needed to change. But he was going about it in a very shrewd way, in a very subversive way. He was going about it in a way that would benefit and bless the slaves and wouldn't lead to their being destroyed if they were to rise up like Spartacus and rebel with some military revolt. If you're familiar with that story, Spartacus led a slave rebellion around 73 BC, and it succeeded for a couple of years until Rome rallied their resources and then just squashed them all. It did not go well. So that's one of the reasons why Paul's more subversive in this text. But another reason why I think Paul is subversive in this, in this text is because he understands that, um, that slaves, that the whole idea of slavery in the first century, sorry, I lost my train of thought. He had Spartacus subversive. Another reason, oh, another reason why he takes more of a subversive approach and he doesn't call for just outright rebellion and social action in this moment is because the church wasn't very influential at this time. The church was a bunch of nobodies in the first century. Had they did speak up, nobody would have listened to them. The church wasn't a people of power in the first century, they weren't a people of great influence at this point in time. And so he understands who he's dealing with. And so this is what he does in this passage. He understands that the church is occupying enemy territory, so to speak. Territory that is not right. Territory that is influenced by sin and Satan and death. And that shows up in the way slaves and masters related to each other. It shows up in the way nations oppress one another and war against each other. He understands the world that the church is occupying. And so when he addresses slaves and masters in this passage, he goes after, he goes after it in such a way that says, look, that you... Um, That God's grace comes to you where you are to help you navigate the world that is, not the world that should be. That when God's grace and God's gospel implants itself in a person's life and it begins to transform communities of people, it then leads us to engage the world as it is, not as it should be. So he's helping these young Christians, these infant believers, first generation of Christ followers. How do I navigate these troubled waters as a slave? How do I navigate these troubled waters as a master of slaves now that I know the real master, Jesus? How do I do this? How do I handle that? And this is where the word comes in. This is where this letter comes to the church to say, look, I'm going to help you navigate the world that is. And I'm going to help you navigate it in a way that is faithful. I'm going to help you navigate it in a way that is fruitful. I'm going to help you navigate it in a way that would honor Jesus and do great good for those around you. And so this is what the Bible does all the time. The Bible meets us where we are. It engages the world that is. And it helps us navigate the complexities of life, the difficulties of life, the challenges of life in faithful, fruitful, God-honoring ways. And so this is the strategy that Paul is taking in this passage, and I just want us to be aware of that because there is no direct parallel between this passage and our lives today because none of you are owned by anybody else. If you are, let us know so we can do something about that, right? (laughs) Or if you own somebody else, let us know so we can stop you from doing that, right? That's not the world that we live in. But that's not to say that this isn't an issue globally, just to back up just a moment. A guy by the name of John Stott put it this way about the influence of the gospel in the first century on this industry. He said the gospel immediately begin even in the first century to undermine the institution of slavery. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. So Paul's lighting a fuse here. The scriptures light a fuse of gospel realities that will change systems and structures. But it changes those systems and structures subversively through the hearts of transformed people. And So this is what's going on here. Now, there's still, although slavery in our land and on our soil has, it seems, been abolished in some ways. I'm not so sure it has been abolished. I think it's just kind of went into hiding and now it's rebranded. It doesn't look the same way it did in the 19th century or the 18th century. Now it kind of takes the form of various uh, outlets of pornography and prostitution and human trafficking and all these dynamics. And that is true in our city. It's true in our country. It's true all, all over the world. There's an organization called the International Justice Mission that we partner with as a church that is taking action against slavery in the world, that is combating it uh, from a gospel-driven motivation and practice. And one of the things that they point out is that there are more slaves in the world today than there's ever been at one time in all of human history. So this whole idea of slaves and masters is still a real concern. It's still a real issue. There's still a lot of work to be done, And we as followers of Jesus want to speak up. We as followers of Jesus want to advocate. We as followers of Jesus want to go to the defense of the defenseless and helping roll back the darkness that is slavery in all of its types of forms. One way is that we're seeking to do this on June 29th. There's a couple of disciples in our church that, have, that are going to be hosting an international justice missions rescue party. And so on June 29th, you can gather in our office space upstairs from about 4 to 6 and come and hear stories about what God is doing through that organization and how we as a church can rally in partnership with them to care for people who need, care, who need to be cared for, to advocate for those who need to be advocated for, to rally resources towards helping and serving those in need that are being oppressed in these ways. And so the International Justice Mission Rescue Party, June 29th, 4 to 6, make a point to come, sit in on that, be a part of that so we can figure out what is our role today as it relates to slavery and everything in the world. Now, with that said, recognizing, again, there's not a strict parallel from this passage and into your life except through the avenue of your work. I think the application or the principles of this passage that are given to slaves and that are given... To masters, I think the principles that can be abstracted from this passage naturally and in some ways obviously transfer into the work that we are doing in this world. And that's what I want us to glean over the next couple of moments. And so when you think about work and just take that metaphor in light of this passage, this passage doesn't say everything that the Bible says about the work that we do in the world, but it does say a lot. Last year, we went through the book of the first three chapters of Genesis and we gave a whole Uh, message on the gospel and work, which was more of a comprehensive biblical theology of how we should engage our work as Christians. Now, I'm not doing all of that tonight. I'm just going to treat this passage and focus on work in this text. And the first thing I want you to understand about the work that you are doing in the world, the work that you are doing should be an expression of worship, that your work should be an expression of worship. That's the big idea about work from cover to cover in the scriptures. Worship Work is an expression of our worship. You see this in a few ways in this passage. Notice that there are about four times where Christ is mentioned. And what Paul is telling slaves and masters to do, he's saying, I want you to do this work. I want you to act this way because of Jesus. Notice it in verse verse 5. He says, I want you to do these things as you would Christ. Verse 6, I want you to do these things as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, I want you to do these things as to the Lord, as an offering to the Lord is how I want you to view the work that you were doing and how you are going about your work in the world. Then you drop down to verse 9 and we're, we're cued into the fact that we have a master who is in heaven. And so it's very clear that Paul is instructing Christians here to think about their relationship to Jesus, their master in heaven, saying, look, everything that you do, I want you to do with Jesus in mind. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, I want you to do it all to his glory. And he applies that whole mentality, that whole worldview to work in this text. He's saying, look, you have an opportunity to make your work count by viewing your work in this world as an expression of worship. Now, some of you are working jobs right now where it's really kind of hard to see because you don't like your job. And you know you're in a situation of life right now where you can't change jobs. But the one thing you can do in your situation is you can change masters. You can see the master behind the master. And you can change the perspective that you are bringing into the work you are doing. Even the work that you don't like. And the work that, quite frankly, some of you want to escape from. You can't change jobs per se, but every one of us can change masters in every moment of every day, recognizing that the one that we are serving ultimately is the risen and reigning king. He is the one who's master of me, and I want to honor him. I want to glorify him. I want to do my work and as an expression of worship to Jesus. And this this changes everything that we do. A few years ago, there was a band called Big Daddy Weave. How many of you have heard of the band Big Daddy Weave? Uh, A few of you. They wrote a song that caught wind for a little while called Audience of One. And the whole idea is that we are to live for an audience of one, that God is our God. He's watching us. He's who we're uh, worshiping. He's who we're uh, living for. We're living for an audience of one. But what's interesting about that song is that the guy who wrote the lyrics to it wrote it while he was cleaning toilets. He didn't write it while he was leading his band around the country singing songs and playing shows in various venues. He wrote those lyrics While he was cleaning toilets, and he's saying, look, I'm doing everything for an audience of one. That was his way of saying, look, all of work should be an expression of worship. Even the work that nobody sees, even the work that people do not enjoy, it can be redeemed in this kind of of way. I love what John Stott said in that quote you read a moment ago that you reflected upon. He said, it is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children. For doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them. For solicitors to help clients shop assistants to serve customers. Accountants to audit books. And secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. That all of work can be done as an expression of worship. This is what Paul wants us to think about in this In this passage. So, when you think about work, we want to say yes, if all of work can be treated this way, that is, work that isn't considered sinful, i.e., prostitution, don't want to put that in there, right? Drug dealing, you don't want to put that in there. Uh, Any work that's not inherently sinful and dishonoring to Jesus, that work can be viewed as sacred, that work can be engaged in as an expression of worship. That's true for all the work that we do, uh, but some of us go about work in this world differently. Some of us, when you look at this passage, will spend our lives working under authority, and others of us will spend our lives working in authority. Some of us will be our own bosses, so to speak. Others will be the bosses of others. We will be employees. We will be employers. And so I want us to think about these two categories First, let's think about working under authority. How can I make my work an expression of worship when I'm having to work under the authority of another person? Now, I know the word uh, authority causes an allergic reaction in us. We don't like to think of authority. We don't like to think of anybody being our boss or having any control or authority over us. We are Americans, after all. And our country was founded by way of revolution and rebellion. We fled to the Pacific Northwest to get away from anyone telling us what to do. That's why we live here in the Pacific Northwest. It's <laughs> authority is not something we like, it's not something we enjoy, but quite frankly, it's something you can't get away from. You will always find yourself under authority in some discernible way, whether you are Whether you have a boss, whether you have a coach, whether you have a supervisor, whether you have a parent, you can't escape being under authority in this world. And one of the litmus tests to whether or not you trust Jesus to be your master and you trust Jesus to be your Lord is how well your heart reacts to the idea of authority. How do you respond and react to authorities in your life? Do you honor those who are in authority over you or do you shirk those who are in authority over you? A lot of that signals a lot of things about where your heart may be in relation to Jesus. So we want to think well about authority. And if we are under authority, we want to live well under authority. And so as you think about this, I'm going to give you four ways that you can work under authority in a way that would honor Jesus and be uh, good for you and for those around you. First, you would work under authority by maintaining an eternal perspective. This is what's read in verse 5. Obey your human masters with fear and trembling. You might want to circle that phrase. An eternal perspective. That phrase, fear and trembling, it pops up a few times in the New Testament. Always in context where the end is in mind. Always in context where a person's accountability to God is in view. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, speaks of the day when every one of us, each one of us, will stand before Jesus and give an account for the lives that we live. And listen to what we read. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so fear and trembling says, I'm going to live with some sobriety about my life. I'm going to live recognizing that the way I go about my work and the, the motives that drive my work, it all matters. And one day I'm going to give an account to God for the work that I did and for the reasons or the motives I brought into that context. And so we want to work with an eternal perspective so that we're not shirking authority at every turn. So he says we want to obey the authorities in our lives. We want to do what our bosses tell us. You can paraphrase it that way. Now, we want to obey our bosses not when they lead us in areas of sin, obviously. That's when we cut ties and run. But it does mean that you're going to obey your bosses when, even if they're leading in the area that you might consider stupid. Or you have a boss that you might consider yourself smarter than or more competent than, but they're in authority. How do you handle that? Well, if they're not leading you to sin, you're still to listen to them. You're still to honor their authority. You are to obey them, so to speak. And so it doesn't mean that we follow them into sin, but it does mean that we uh, that our obedience isn't dependent upon how well they impress us as leaders or how well they even treat us as authorities. That's not where our allegiance lies. Remember, we're looking to the master behind the master, and we're obeying, we're working, we're being submissive in different, different respects with Jesus in view. So we have to have this eternal perspective in mind or we're never, gonna, we're never going to get, get this. So you have an eternal perspective being called for here, but then you also have an intrinsic motivation. He says, with fear and trembling, then he says, in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. And then again in verse 6, he says, do God's will from your heart. He's getting after an intrinsic motivation that should drive us to do the work that we do. You know, some of us only work because we want a paycheck, right? But for the Christian, if we're understanding what it means to be created in the image of God and having his image restored in us, we don't see work as a necessary evil. We don't see work as something we have to do in this world. No, we recognize that we are created in the image of God, and we know that Adam and Eve were told to work in Eden, that work isn't a curse per se. Work isn't the consequence of sin. Now, frustrations in work, that is, but just work isn't. And if we are created in the image of God who worked in creation, and if we are created in the image of God who worked in our redemption, then we can see dignity that is inherent to the whole idea of work. And so we're not just extrinsically motivated to have a job or to work hard. It's not just because we want a paycheck. It's not just because we want to put food on the table. It's not just because we want to do this, that, or the other. We are intrinsically motivated because it's part of who we are as creatures created in the image of God. And so there's an intrinsic motivation where we want to do God's will. And what's interesting, earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul kind of introduced this language in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning of verse 8, he's talking about salvation. And listen to what he says. He reminds us that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gifts. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we, are, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. What he's saying is that part and parcel of our salvation, of our redemption, is the restoration of our approach to work. So that we begin to see work as a good thing and not a necessary evil. We see work as something that we should do, not avoid at all costs. And so there's an intrinsic motivation that rallies. You know, God has prepared good works for me to do, good works that I am to walk in. And part of those good works involve the work you're doing in your jobs and in your vocations. You have opportunity to do good things in your workplaces. And so you own those moments and you go after those in ways that would be honoring to your superiors or to your authorities. And good for you as an employee and good for those that your services would benefit So you have an intrinsic motivation here. But then he goes on, not only an intrinsic motivation, but do it with a positive attitude. He says to serve with a good attitude. Now, this is challenging because a lot of times in our jobs we're asked to do things that we don't want to do or things that seem beneath us, beneath our dignity. Well, I have this level of education. My boss is asking me to do something that any any person off the street can do and I, I don't like that and and then we start grumbling we start complaining and the moment we start grumbling and complaining we show ourselves to be just like everybody else and that there's really no discernible difference between people men and women of grace men and women of gospel than there are of those who are not of grace or not of gospel but here he says i want you to serve with a good attitude and remember who he's talking to he's talking to slaves And he's challenging slaves to serve with a good attitude. Now, if Paul can say that to them, surely I can say that to you. I don't care what your job is in this society. I don't care what your vocation is in this moment. You can engage your responsibilities with a positive attitude that is distinct and different from those around you. And if you ever get to the point where you say, well, this task is beneath me and I'm not stooping that low to serve anyone, I would remind you of Jesus. Who entered this world, took on flesh, lived the life as a, well, for the first 30 years, working a job of a carpenter. And then he became a, basically a penniless rabbi walking around teaching about the kingdom of God. Ultimately to bring him to this point where he's sitting with his disciples in the upper room. And he has the audacity to pull out a basin and a towel and starts washing the feet of his disciples. You want to talk about stooping low. Jesus stooped low in his vocation. He stooped low in his service. And I believe he did it with a positive attitude because he knew he was operating with an internal perspective. He was intrinsically motivated. And that gave him a positive attitude to serve those around him and to do what tasks were put before him to do. And I would encourage you to follow in his wake, to let him be your example on this front. There's an interesting passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul talks about this idea of positive attitude and what it looks like to have a bad attitude. And listen to what he says, Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. I love that phrase. And sometimes I've read that passage and I think, okay, how can I make myself shine like stars? And and I work myself up into a frenzy thinking it has to do with all these complicated things I have to bring into my Christianity or I have to bring into my life. If I'm going to really shine or if we as a church are really going to shine in the city of Seattle, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Do you understand what he's saying, though? Shining is as simple as not complaining. It's as simple as not grumbling and arguing. That's how you shine because... Everybody else is grumbling and complaining, right? Having a positive attitude. thats Shining is as simple as not complaining and embracing a positive attitude as you engage the work that you were given to do for as long as you were given that work to do. And so there's a positive attitude here. But then finally, there's a God-honoring excellence in this dynamic. He says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers. Meaning, don't just do your job when people are noticing. Do your job when nobody is watching. Christians should be the type of people who can work unsupervised. That we don't have to have people looking over our shoulders to make sure we're doing the things that we've been assigned to do. Why? Because we have a bigger master. We have a better master. And he's seeing everything that we're doing. So we work with a God-honoring excellence, whether people see it or not. We work with a God-honoring excellence, whether people thank us for it or not. We work with a God-honoring excellence, whether we are passed over for promotions or not. We have a positive attitude engaging in this kind of work. Christians should be the most sought-after employees in the city of Seattle. If we are believing the gospel, if we are being changed by grace, we should be the most sought-after employees in this city because employers should see you are a people who are wired differently. You are a people who think about work differently. It's not a necessary evil in your mind. It's a way for you to glorify God and to serve others and to contribute to the flourishing of of society. We We have a different wiring when it comes to our work. C.S. Lewis talks about explorers. He gives a picture of these explorers who go into a valley that had never been discovered before. And then when they enter this valley, they discover these flowers that were luscious and beautiful. And as far as they could tell, they're the first ones to ever lay eyes on this beautiful aspect of creation. And so Lewis then asks the question, who did God put those flowers there for if nobody would ever see them? Who did God put those flowers there for if nobody ever saw them? And the answer, well, God beautifies some things just for himself. He beautifies some things just for his enjoyment. This is our mentality, right? Work that we do that nobody sees should still be done as an offering to God. It still can be beautified and lifted up to the Lord, done unto Christ who is our master and our king. And so we work under authority, keeping these dynamics in mind. But then he doesn't just talk about work done under authority. Verse 9, he talks to people who are in authority, people who have power or influence over others. He says in verse 9, and masters, treat your slaves, get this the same way. Meaning he's saying everything I just said about them, it applies to you too. So if you're working in authority, you too need an eternal perspective. You need to need an intrinsic motivation. You too need a positive attitude. You too must engage in God honoring excellence. Everything that is true of them is true for you. He says, just act the same way. Do the same things you're expecting those under you to do. But then he goes on and he offers up this qualifier. He says, and do this without threatening them. Exercise influence, exercise authority, lead those who are under your leadership. Without threatening them, without intimidating them, without manipulating them, without, frankly, controlling them. This is what he's getting after. You see, the number one motivation that masters had to keep their servants in line in the first century was through the threat of punishment. And so they used fear and threat constantly to keep people in line. If you are a person who is working in authority, I would encourage you, don't take your cues from a fear-motivated posture of leadership. But instead, take your cues from Christ. Recognize that you are to engage and use the power that you've been given to lift other people up, not to level people down. That you are to use your power and your influence and your authority, not to manipulate and control others, but to lift others up and to empower them to do God-honoring work. This is how we want to think about ourselves if we are in authority over others. There are two ways to relate to power in your life. You can try to collect it. And you can try to hoard it or you can try to leverage it. And I think as followers of Jesus, we want to leverage power, right? If you are in authority, leverage your authority for the good of everyone around you. This is why we take our cues from Jesus. This is what we learned in Mark chapter 10, the passage you read a moment ago. Mark chapter 10, Jesus called his disciples over to him and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. This is how they are. They use threat. They use fear. They use manipulation. They use control. But it is not so among you. You are to be a different sort of leader. You are to be a different sort of influencer. You are to engage in authority differently. And he goes on. He says, on the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't you love that? He's saying if you're working in authority, I want you to take your cues from me. Don't look at the boss next door and rule like he rules. Look to me. Keep me in your scope. Keep me in your sights. And if you've been entrusted with authority, if you are working in authority, I want you to take your cues from me. Now, one question I get sometimes about this passage is, uh, does this mean that I can't hold my employees accountable, right? If you have people reporting to you and that you're responsible for, how do you hold them accountable? How do you keep them uh, motivated and working if you're not supposed to threaten or manipulate or control them in those kinds of ways? Well, how are you to think about holding employees accountable, And this is how I would encourage you to think about it today. I would encourage you to think about that dynamic. Uh, I would ask yourself the question, what am I holding them accountable to? Am I holding them accountable to my preferences or to my biases? Or am I holding them accountable to some objective standard that everybody around has agreed to? Am I holding some employees to a different type of accountability than all my employees? Am I showing partiality in the way that I am leveraging my authority in the lives of those that I am responsible for that are looking to me for authority and leadership. I think it's interesting that Paul ends this note about a partiality. He's basically saying, look, you're not to show partiality in your authority, meaning if you have an employee that's a husky or a cougar, you don't treat them any different. You show no partiality in that front. You don't give promotions based on that type of qualification or that type of criteria. No, you take into account as best you can objective standards. What was the job description? What were the responsibilities that we all agreed to that have been clearly communicated and assigned and how are they doing in light of that standard and not my own personal preferences or my own personal biases? And so you are. I'm not, this doesn't mean that you don't hold people accountable. You do hold them accountable, but you hold them accountable to something objective that is outside of you and that can be equally applied to everyone under your leadership, everyone under your authority. And so we want to think about this because some of you, are working under authority right now. Others of you are working in authority. Some of you are going to move into authority one day, and I hope and pray that you would move into that arena, seeking to leverage the authority that you have to lift others up, to empower others, not just to level them or to run over them. And so we want to think about these dynamics, because ultimately when we think about work, we have to be very clear When we're getting this, when we're thinking about Jesus and the gospel is giving shape to the work that we are doing in the world, we will never allow the work that we are doing in this world to define us. We will never allow the work that we are doing in this world to draw us away from the authority of Jesus. No, we're going to trust Jesus, believing that his work for our salvation is the ultimate work. And since we are trusting in his work, we don't have to Lean on our work to define us or our work to justify us or our work to validate us. No, we're justified. We're validated. In a word, we are free to work in a way that would honor God and help people. We're free to do that because we don't, we're not wrapped up in the work that we're doing. And we can draw the necessary distinction between my value and my worth and the work that I'm doing in the world that is. That distinction can be drawn because we believe the gospel and we're trusting in the work of Jesus. So let me encourage you to work in light of Jesus' work as you go about working under authority and as you go about working in authority. Let's pray together.